Hey, welcome to You Had Me at Black. I'm Martina Abrahams Ilunga. After a year hiatus, we are back. To keep it 100% real with y'all, after three years of producing and hosting our kickbacks, our team burnt out. So we took some time off to recharge, regroup, and rebuild, and I am so excited for you all to hear what we're working on. And thank you always for riding with us and for your emails and your messages and your DMs of support and asking us when we would be back on the air. They really, really meant a lot and kept us going. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, welcome, welcome, welcome to the family. We first launched in 2016 with the mission to reclaim the Black narrative by giving everyday people a microphone to share their true life stories. And today, we're kicking off a new series called At The House. Here's how it works. We'll announce a topic and story call. Y'all will have one week to record and send in a relevant but true story that's under five minutes. Our favorite will make the podcast. That's just part one. For part two, head over to the Wild Black Podcast. They'll be having conversations about the same topic, bringing on experts and interesting people to talk about how that part of Black life has changed, might change, or will change during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. Our first topic is love. We asked you for stories about any kind of love, romantic love, the love you have for your best friend, the love you have for your family or that you've built for yourself. We wanted to know, when did you know it was love? But first, this episode is sponsored by Identity. They help me manage all the sites I log into across the internet. My info used to be all over the place, y'all. I couldn't even tell you which sites I had my card number or address stored in. But now, it's all organized in one spot. Our listeners can get started for free at identity.com slash Y-H-M-A-B. All right, it's story time. Our first story comes from Milan. Growing up in the South to a biracial family, it was tricky at times. I was ridiculed for having a father that wasn't black like most of my friends and my family. I was ridiculed for looking different and being different. I was even ridiculed for my name. I just wanted to be like everyone else, like every kid does. It began a series of events of just self-loathing and really embracing the stereotypes, unfortunately, of a black kid in the South and what that means. Slowly but surely, I got into dealing drugs and hanging out on street corners, getting into fights and stealing. When I was 13, my family moved to Michigan because my dad got out the military and had an opportunity to get us out of poverty. Once we got here though, 
things just got worse. Not only was I different for the way I looked and my family, but I was different because I wasn't from here. I had a different accent. I walked different. I talked different. Well, sometimes it paid off and, you know, that difference attracted me to my high school sweetheart. It also created in me already a a deep wound and a deep pain that I was nurturing with more drug dealing and more criminal activities. All the while going to football practice and track practice. But it wasn't until I was 16 that I got in a spinal cord injury and broke my neck at the C4 level, which meant that everything from the neck down shut down. My journey to self-love really began in that moment. Oddly enough, the most tragic thing that happened to my life was the catalyst for greatness and change. I began to self-love because I began to not only seek forgiveness for what I had done, but also to forgive. To forgive my father for the things that he couldn't control, like his own skin tone or the woman he fell in love with. Forgive myself for the drug dealing and the crimes and the punishment that I inflicted on myself. As I began to regain more ability and to just be around other people in the hospital that were also in that same boat, I realized that I was still a person of value. You know, all I was left with were my thoughts and my words, but it turns out that's all that I needed. Thankfully, my thoughts went to a good place and I sought God in a more distinct way and I felt like I have connected with him more intimately and it's a real relationship now. But after I got out of the hospital, it was it was a new world. The friends that I had before were all drug dealers and not really worth my time. So the people that I was around were just my parents and my brother for the first few years. And seeing how they were devoted to me and loved me and supported me and did all the things for me that I couldn't do anymore really allowed me to love myself, to discover my own humor. And I began to search for what made me happy. And as I got stronger and got more ability and experienced more things, I stopped comparing it to the old me and just started living each day. This next story comes from Richard, who fell in love on home plate. I knew it was love when I was about 9 or 10 years old, and I was on a Little League baseball team. I can't remember the name of the team we were playing, but it was a game, and uh, the bases were loaded, and it was my turn up the bat. So as a pitcher's throwing the ball, I get a hit, and I'm running the first. There's a bad throw to first. So I'm running the second, and as I'm rounding second, um, I'm sliding in the third base, and there's another bad throw in third base. And all I hear is everybody yelling, go, 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 go. So I'm running into home plate as hard as I can, and I slide into home plate, and I am safe. And right then and there, I knew it was love, because for the first time, 
felt like I was really good at something, but also it felt like I was, you know, a part of something as well. And right then and there, I learned so much. But the biggest lesson I took away is you just have to get up there and try. No matter what, um, no matter what you do or what's going to happen, if you just get up there and try, anything can happen in sports, anything can happen in life. And that's how I knew it was love. Here's Mies, who remembers the first time she recognized her mother's love. My earliest memory of feeling and being loved goes back to my childhood. We were living in Haiti at the time, and my parents were a very traditional Catholic family. But at some point early on, my mom converted to a Jehovah's Witness. So this one year, I was turning five or six, and my mom handed me a doll, and I got really excited. I remember jumping up and down and saying, yay, yay, you got me a doll for my birthday. So this was a big deal to me because in my family... We were not that big into birthdays. You know, we acknowledged the age, we said happy birthdays, but gifts were never the norm. So I was just shocked, and I remember saying, thank you so much, and just screaming of joy. Just picture a happy kid. (laughs) So very strongly, my mom, you know, she killed my vibe pretty much. She said, I got you a doll because I wanted to. I don't need an occasion to give you a present. I need to make it clear that this is not a birthday gift. Because in her religion... They don't celebrate birthdays. So she kept insisting that she didn't get me a gift for my birthday. So even though she denied that this was a birthday gift, I just accepted it as such. I felt like it was her way of showing me that she still cared about me. She loved me. And I, it was, I, growing up now as an adult, I felt like she was being, she was conflicted between her religion and my birthday, I guess. And and to this day, I still don't know if she really just got me a doll to get me a doll or if she got me a doll for my birthday. But I, back then as a kid, I felt like that was a true depiction of love for me because I, since she went against her religion, it's like she chose me over her religion. Next up is Tony. He and his wife moved states, complicating some side relationships that he hadn't let go. When the shelter-in-place order hit, it left him scrambling. I knew it was love when I told my wife I can't have two lovers. We immediately found ourselves on lockdown in our new house. The coronavirus suddenly had become very real, seemingly overnight. At the new house, I began to miss my love. As my wife and I visited stores in our new neighborhood, I secretly would look around, hoping to see my love. After shopping at three stores, there was no sign of my love. You see, I love Ben and Jerry chocolate fudge brownie ice cream. (laughs) Rumor had spread that the mayor was contemplating shutting down New York City and that people should stock up on all necessities for like two to three weeks. So naturally, my search intensified for my love with no luck. Said we went to a Walgreens to stock up on additional supplies for the lockdown. And then I saw it, serendipity, a playfully colored ice cream. I had never seen that brand before, but I couldn't take my eyes off of Forbidden Broadway Sunday. I took her home. I couldn't resist. I don't know if it's the creamy texture or that it delivers a chewy, perfectly baked brownie bite just for when you need it or that it makes me smile when I think about the fact that my daughters don't call me or visit me and all that daddy girls kind of stuff. I fell in love. The next day, 
My wife and I saw Ben and Jerry in another store. I told my wife, I can't have two lovers. It was then that I let Ben and Jerry chocolate fudge brownie ice cream go. So my dad actually called in this story, and I want you all to know that I've called him many times since he sent it in. So my story begins with my best friend. Her name is Denise, and we met in college freshman year. Denise is the coolest person I know. She's also the most careless. So when I get an HBO account, I made it clear that I was only sharing it with my closest friends. That, of course, includes Denise. I must have shared my login in our group chat dozens of times, but every other day it feels like Denise is hitting me up about it. Hey, what's your HBO login again? It starts with a B, right? One day I hear my phone buzz in my pocket. It's Denise. Hey, girl, I gave your HBO password to my cousin. That's cool, right? She wants to watch Insecure, too. Uh, hell no, it's not cool. I don't know your cousin. I think to myself, I need to get control over my shit immediately. That's when I remember identity. It helps me manage all of my accounts in just one place and gives me power over who can access them and my information. With identity, I can create a secure and unique link to my HBO account just for Denise. And boom, she's good to go. Denise gets to watch her shows, and my password isn't all out in these streets. So when the next time she calls, Hello, Denise. Your carelessness will annoy me no longer. Identity is a life savior and a patient savior. I guess the moral of the story is, don't let Denise or her cousin bug you for your HBO login. Watch Insecure without feeling insecure about who's watching with you. Sign up for Identity. And great news, if you had me at Black, listeners can get started for free at identity.com slash Y-H-M-A-B. That's identity. I-D-E-N-A-T-I. Now, you'll hear from Alterell. He's an overachiever in everything he does, always striving for the A-plus and doing whatever extra thing will help him achieve it. He happened to give up his cookie before the school year even began. So I knew it was love when he showed up with a notepad and a recording device. Back in 2014, when I was visiting MBA programs, trying to decide where I was going to go, I'd ask Jessica if she knew any people I might get along with from her college network that were also considering the same business schools. She said she had gone to college with this guy uh, whose name was Deron. And so just by random luck, we wound up in the same randomly assigned classroom that visiting weekend, um, and it turned out to be Deron. And so we talked for a little bit, and then we realized that we had just in common, and then eventually we took our seats for the bag lunches that they provided. And then in looking at the lunch, I realized we had a problem. I had a sugar cookie in my bag, and that was not good. So I started asking the people seated near me if they wanted to do a cookie trade. I got offers for equally as uninteresting cookies, and then Deron, like, stood up and was just like, hey, I have a chocolate chip cookie if you want it. And I was like, do you want the sugar cookie to trade? He's like, no, I don't want that sugar cookie to trade. You can just keep up. So after that weekend, I was catching up with Jessica, and I'm like, so is he gay or not? Because I really don't have time to make more confused straight friends, and I'm going to business school explicitly to make more gay friends. And Jessica was like, I can't really speak on that, but I think you'll get along. So fast forward to our first week of actual business school, me and the only other black gay at the time are going to the gay student group happy hour, and I see Deron there. 
And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so we gay, gay, fully now. So I go up to him and followed up with Ron after the happy hour and was just like, bro, this community can be confusing. Let me know if you have questions or if you want like an onboarding meeting. Super corporate and structured, I know. So we set up a time to chat. He came prepared. He has questions from research that he did online, including what he read that didn't really seem to add up. And he also had a notepad in his phone to record the conversation. After an hour or so on and off the record conversation, I really had no choice but to stand. It's like true friend match, conscientious, black, gay, nerd, who stays on ready. And so we've been friends now for going on six years. And it's actually just amazing to feel like, you know, I met someone. He likes to tell people that he gave me his cookie. But for me, that didn't happen. <laughs> it did, but not like that. It's really that he came with a notepad. Our last story comes from Colt Classic who learned some things about herself after a day of drinking and fuckboy behavior. In 2016, I took a weekend road trip with my boyfriend at the time. We had known each other for a year and a half and had been officially together for three months. So yeah, we had real big honeymoon phase energy out there. On the last day of the trip, a group of us start the morning at the liquor store, and then we go to a BYOB brunch spot. What I'm saying is we basically came when the spot opened and drank heavily until we were the last table in the building. Then we happily and drunkenly waddle out of the brunch spot, bloated with French toast and champagne and bourbon. Our next move was to walk around the city and sightsee, but the weather had other plans. Literally, as soon as we stepped out into the street, the sky cracked open like huge, blinding, torrential downpour. We're all drunk, but this is the moment that four hours of drinking and high glycemic breakfast food hit my boyfriend all at once. He's slumped, like eyes low, body slack. Literally, the building behind him is holding him up. Oh, and the sky is still falling. A heavy drunk person is actually manageable, but a heavy drunk and vomiting person, that, that's hell. So I attempt to call one of his friends in the area to come get us. Surely they had sent him a text in the last few hours. So all I have to do is scroll through his text messages and dial the last number, right? Easy. So I'm scrolling and there's a blank thread with a nude in it. The girl was straight. She wasn't me, but she wasn't ugly or disgusting or all those things we hope any woman or man has ever dealt with before, during or after us is. But there's no time for me to let the rage set in because we're a group of sloppily drunk black people on a street corner and my boyfriend is basically passed out magically the rain lets up with the help of his best friend i drag his drunk ass back to his car and i have to decide do i say fuck you forever and take a bus back to the city or do i let him sober up and explain i put a pin in it because what the fuck i take my makeup wipes out wipe them down and then dump them into the backseat of his car for a conveniently quiet car ride Everyone was exhausted, damp, sweaty, or zoning out to sober up. It's like 1 a.m. when we get home. Mind you, I had been smelling vomit and thinking through what to do about the decently attractive girl on his phone since like 4 p.m. Wordlessly, I step into my shower, and I guess he pieces it all together after looking through his phone. I ask a few questions, and I get a decent explanation, or a good enough explanation. I always delete threads. See? That girl just sends me nudes. So I suppose there's two moments when I knew it was love. I knew I loved him when I sacrificed a pack of Garnier Fructis makeup wipes to clean vomit off him, despite the anger and betrayal I was supposed to feel. 
I was surprised that compassion is a much stronger emotion than revenge. Shout out to me, man. I knew I loved my peace of mind when I decided to accept his truth and wait for the light to fall on whatever darkness he was hiding from me. Thanks for listening to You Had Me at Black and our At the House series. Catch part two on the Wall Black podcast on Sunday, May 3rd. The next episode of At the House is all about family discoveries. What are things you've learned about your family and how did you discover them? Tell us what happened. Visit youhadmeatblack.com slash at the house to share with us. There you'll find tips to help you tell a bomb ass story in five minutes or less. We can't wait to hear it. If you love what you heard today, let us know. Leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at You Had Me at Black. And visit youhadmeatblack.com to learn more about our team, how to sponsor or partner with us, and to donate to our production fund. You can find links to everything in the show notes. You Had Me at Black was created by two sisters. That's us, Martina and Brittany Abrahams. We produced this podcast along with Richard White. And Miles Dotson, our sound designer and engineer, he makes us sound good.